Hi, everyone. This is Scott from Prepare to Answer. I want to share some news with you about an exciting new resource that we've created called So Much More Than Sex. It's no secret that the subject of sex is one of the biggest concerns for young Christians today. That's why we've created So Much More Than Sex for senior teens and young adults. It's a four-part video series, complete with notes and discussion questions, that you can do with your young adults class, small group, or even on your own. The point of the series is to help you shift the narrative about sex away from seeing biblical teaching as little more than an outdated list of do's and don'ts, and replacing it with the overwhelmingly positive, life-giving, and eternally significant vision that the Bible gives for your sexually ordered body. If you want to get in on the So Much More Than Sex series, just follow the link in the episode description. And now we turn to today's episode. The question basically being, what if a person is born with a male body but a female brain, or vice versa? If that's the case, why wouldn't we help to correct a person's body so that it's more in line with their brain? I think the fact that it's being asked makes it an important one to discuss because there are so many things packed into the question itself. What it really boils down to is our understanding of human nature itself. Welcome to another podcast from Prepared Dancer. My name is Sean Walker, and I'm joined by Scott Steen. And today we're going to tackle the question of whether or not we can be born into the wrong body. But before we do that, we just wanted to remind listeners that if you have any questions about what we're talking about today, or any questions in general, that we'd encourage you to jump on our website, preparedtoanswer.org, or reach out to us through Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. So Scott, can I be born in the wrong body? Kind of a strange question. How did we happen upon it? Well, how I came upon it was being asked it after a couple of talks I did on the subject of a Christian view of gender and identity. There were actually two people who asked the same question, just in a different way. The question basically being, what if a person is born with a male body but a female brain, or vice versa? If that's the case, why wouldn't we help to correct a person's body so that it's more in line with their brain? That's kind of the way the question was posed to me. And so essentially the issue is, you know, what if someone is born in the wrong body, either a woman who's trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's body? I think the fact that it's being asked makes it an important one to discuss because there are so many things packed into the question itself. What it really boils down to is our understanding of human nature itself. And so when someone's asking me if someone has a brain that's not doesn't match their body, shouldn't we correct the body? To me, I think as Christians, there are some basic biblical assumptions about human nature that I think we need to readdress because I think packed in the question itself are some assumptions really that are cultural ones i.e. the idea that your brain can be different from your body and also the idea that the brain is the center of the self and if your brain is wired as a female brain that means you must be a female all of those things are assumptions I think that we need to call into question. So scientifically, haven't we determined that we can have a female brain but a male body? Isn't that been scientifically proven? Well, the short answer to that question is no. There are a few things I would say regarding the science on that. And, you know, I'm not a scientist, although I've been able to read people who are. And I've done a fair bit of reading on some of the scientific literature on the subject. 
The one thing I found which makes it very difficult is there isn't even agreement in the field of science. A couple of books that were written, and these are recent works, and they're both written by progressive, liberal, feminist scientific thinkers. So I'm not appealing to some kind of Christian bias here. I'm just looking at at mainstream scientific discussion. The first book is called The Female Brain, written by Luanne Brizendine. She's a neuropsychiatrist. Uh, She's a clinician, a professor, a researcher at University of Southern California in San Francisco. So she's no slouch. She's well regarded in this field. And here's something she says in the book. She says, thanks to modern imaging technology, scientists have documented an astonishing array of structural, chemical, genetic, hormonal, and functional brain differences between men and women. And so she is very much of the school of thought that says, look, when you look at the physical, chemical, structural composition of a female versus the male brain, although they share many similarities, there are clear differences that science shows us. So there is a female brain and a male brain. More recently, in fact, last year, Gina Rippon, who is a professor of cognitive neuroimaging at the Aston Brain Center, Aston University, Birmingham, England. So again, another highly regarded professional in the field. She wrote a book called The Gender Brain. The subtitle is The New Neuroscience That Shatters the Myth of the Female Brain. And what she says is that the advent of brain imaging at the end of the 20th century did not do much to advance our understanding of alleged links between sex and the brain. So she argues the exact opposite. What she argues is that, no, there's no such thing as a male and female brain. Her argument is that male and female, those are entirely social constructions. The reason why a brain would appear to be female is because it's been feminized by the cultural environment. And so because our world has has these distinct gender categories of male-female, well, historically, that's just the brain has simply adapted to a pre-existing cultural construct. So it's not even as cut and dry just by saying, you know, what does science show us? Because even science comes from varying philosophical positions on the subject. So So it's not a settled science then? Absolutely not. Uh, there's really two schools of thought. There, there are what would be referred to as gender essentialists, and those would be biologists who would say, look, at there's a biological basis for sex and gender. And then you would have the social constructionist who would say, look, mm-hmm. at basically our biology is a blank slate, and it simply reflects and adapts to the environment that it's yeah. nurtured in. And so if we can change the culture, then we can do away with these constructed distinctions that there's such a thing as male and female. So it really does vary on the philosophical viewpoints of those who are doing the science. Okay. So Scott, it sounds like the science isn't settled on this matter, but even if it was, would it matter? Yeah, Sean. Part of the problem is that it doesn't seem like the science is settled. It's tempting to look for the science that will verify or validate the position you want to hold. I'm just trying to be honest here and saying that while there's a lot of science that does show there are actual differences, there are Mm -hmm. some qualified scientists who are saying, no, there isn't any. But even if the science was clear, even if the science did tell us that there are some clear-cut female and male characteristics to brain structure, and I think there are, I think that can be argued, but again... Because I'm not a scientist, I'm not going to take a firm stand on that. But even if there were, and there were some men's brains who display some female typical brain characteristics, and there are some women's brains who display male typical characteristics, my question still is, how does that make their brain of the opposite Hmm. sex? It reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where Jerry was dating a girl who had man hands. 
I mean, it was kind of a funny episode because this beautiful woman sitting across, but every time they would cut to her hands, right. they would double in the hands of some construction worker, you know, b- breaking a baguette or, right. or opening, sure. opening a beer bottle yeah. that's not even a twist yeah. top with her bare hands or cracking the lobster. Yeah. And, and it made for a funny TV. It made for a funny sketch. But regardless of how exaggerated her hands were, she didn't actually have the hands of a man. This was a woman whose hands maybe bore some typical male characteristics. And I think even if the science could show that there are some typical female and male brain characteristics, even if there are male brains that share some of those female characteristics, that doesn't make them a female brain. It makes it a male brain because it's in a male body. It makes it a male brain that shares some female typical characteristics. The third thing I would just want to mention, though, is to the extent that we can link brain and mind together, what all neuroscience does agree on is the brain's ability to change over time. Neurologists refer to this as neuroplasticity. And it's remarkable because you you see in all kinds of instances where there is severe brain damage and you think, well, that's it. This person's never going to be the same. And yet their brain is able to rewire itself. Even in older age, the brain shows a high degree of adaptability and malleability in terms of being able to rewire itself. And what this shows is that we can actually change our brain structure over time by changing the way that we think. And to me, this points to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Paul says that God brings transformation through the renewing of our minds. And I think this ties in neatly with a biblical worldview and why God is so intensely interested in the way that we think. Because the way that we think really does shape what and who we are. And so, yes, a person's brain, because of the fall of sin, it may begin with characteristics that may lend itself to particular behaviors or even particular thought patterns. But that doesn't mean that they're fixed that way. A person can change. And I think that's one of the great hopes that the gospel gives to us, that we're not fixed by our biology in that sense. We can actually be transformed and we can change. And God can redeem even our brains and our minds in the way that we think. Fair enough, Scott. But we can't deny that people feel like they're in the wrong body, that they they may be in a male body, but they feel like they think and act like a female. What do we say to that? Sure. And I don't want to suggest or negate for a minute that people really do experience these kinds of feelings. There's a difference between asking the question, can someone be trapped in the wrong body versus can a person feel as though they're trapped in the wrong body? Can they feel that way? Absolutely. And I don't want to deny that. And I think that should evoke a great deal of compassion and sympathy for people whose living experience is that emotionally, psychologically, they really do feel at odds with their gendered body. I can't imagine the more frightening thing to actually feel out of place in your own body. And of course, the clinical term for that is gender dysphoria, or at least that's the clinical term being used right now. So I don't want to diminish that at all. The issue that I want to get at, though, is not can they feel this way or do they feel this way, but rather what ought they to make of those feelings or how ought they interpret those feelings or those experiences? And I think that's the bigger question that needs to be addressed, where right now what our culture is communicating is that what those feelings mean is that you actually are someone of the opposite sex. Even that's beginning to change, though, in that whether you actually are or aren't isn't even the issue anymore. It just It's a matter of how you wish to identify. It's, it's kind of a long and complicated discussion. But more for the person who really does feel that sense of being right. trapped, what I would want to be able to do is to help them question how mm-hmm. to interpret those feelings. 
what the gospel, what the Bible allows us to do is to see what those things actually mean from God's perspective, rather than listening to the voices of culture who are saying, oh, if this is your experience, this is what it means, and therefore this is what you need to do. And my fear for people is that because of the direction our culture is taking, many are taking drastic steps to medically alter their bodies in ways that are often irreversible and downright damaging. That's terribly unpopular to say. But you know what? For the sake of love and compassion for the people around us, we need to speak the truth and we need to help them keep from doing real harm to themselves as they work through some of these difficult feelings. So, Scott, then how does the Bible help us to interpret those experiences, those feelings? What the Bible provides for us in revealing God's truth to us, it gives us a view of the world that is God's view. So, it's not tainted by our own particular perspective or our feelings or the the messages that we receive from the culture around us. It gives us God's perspective. He's the one who made us. He understands our nature. He understands the impact of sin and the impact it has upon our entire being, whether it's body, soul, spirit, or mind. And so how it helps us is to give us a true perspective of who and what we really are. This doesn't negate the kinds of feelings we have, but what it allows us to do is to take whatever feeling or experience we may be having and bring that under the light of God's truth to evaluate or if necessary, correct or alter or modify so that our feelings really line up with what is actually true. So how the Bible then helps us to retrain our view of this particular question is giving us a clear and truthful understanding of the nature of our being. And one of the things that the Bible makes very clear is it dispels this myth that somehow I and my body are two different things, right? That there's a me and then there's this body that I'm trapped in that often limits the real me from expressing or living itself out. The Bible's view is that our bodies are sacred. They are inseparable from who and what we are. We can think about our bodies in isolation, but we can never isolate ourselves from our bodies. Yes, we're more than just our body, but we're certainly not less than our body. This is borne out all through the New Testament in the kind of body language that's used, particularly starting with the language that Jesus uses in teaching about our place in God's kingdom. In Matthew 6, Jesus says that if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Notice something here, that Jesus is equating the spiritual peril of sin as being a bodily peril. Whereas oftentimes I think we spiritualize everything, right? That hell is some disembodied kind of torture chamber and that heaven is some kind of disembodied bliss. When biblically speaking, Jesus talks about all these things as a bodily reality. Where I think the importance of the body is made most clear is in the incarnation of Jesus. The fact that the eternal Son of God was born in human flesh, became a human being, and it wasn't just an appearance of a body. Jesus became a living, embodied being just like us. So that his death on the cross was a real sacrifice. Because in giving up his body, he was in fact giving up his own life. And that's why he says in John 10, 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. What he's talking about is laying down his physical life, offering up his body, which goes to the grave, which he then resurrects again. His resurrection body was an eternal signifier of the eternal significance of our bodies. 
So this notion that we can somehow separate ourselves, our true selves, from our physical bodies, that is a recent cultural phenomenon. And biblically, the the Bible says the exact opposite. Now, how this helps us with our particular question of whether or not a person can be born in the wrong body is first in establishing the clear teaching of the Bible that we cannot separate ourselves from our bodies. That made in God's image, our bodies are intended to reflect who and what we truly are. Now, the other thing scripture clearly teaches, and this is coming out of the Genesis creation account, is that God creates us as embodied beings, but particularly he creates us as gendered beings, right? Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, that God creates mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So this gender distinction within humanity is essential to our nature and our being as God's image bearers. But what differentiates us as gendered beings is our gendered bodies. So biblically speaking, on the basis of the body that I was born with, the body that God gave to me, My gendered body tells me who and what God made me to be in terms of being a man or a woman. Now, Sean, as soon as I say that, someone will bring up the rare exceptions of those who are born with intersex conditions. There's a variety of ways that presents, but essentially what it means is that there's some discrepancy in terms of how the male or female genitalia present themselves, both internally and externally, in the body. There's a couple things I would want to say about this. First, in these cases, I think it's important to understand that what's happening is not someone, a man or a woman, being born in the wrong body. Rather, we have a man or a woman being born in a body that, for whatever reason, is not presenting the typical clear markers that we look for when identifying whether one's body is male or female. In other words, their body is presenting a certain degree of ambiguity about their gender distinction as man or woman. This is very different from someone who is born with a body that clearly presents itself as male or female, and yet that person feels somehow psychologically at odds with their gendered bodies. In their case, the task is to help them somehow accept, affirm, and be reconciled to their gender as clearly presented by their body, whereas for the intersex, the challenge is in helping them to identify their gender while their body fails to provide total clarity. The second thing I'd want to say with respect to the intersex is that probably the majority of cases, while there might be some ambiguity presented at birth, usually there are enough secondary gender distinction markers that doctors or the medical field can determine whether the baby born with intersex conditions is actually a boy or a girl. But sometimes that might not be the case. And so it's possible that a person could grow up and live their lives never quite fully feeling a sense of clarity or peace with knowing whether or not God had made them to be a man or a woman. In which case, what do we say to a person in those circumstances? And this is where the gospel of Jesus really is good news for every person who would listen and hear and receive him. Because what the gospel reminds us of and what the Bible reminds us of is that though God has made us to bear his image as man or woman, that is not ultimately where our core identity is found. Let me just read for you what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. He says, So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, 
for you are all one in Christ. Now, Paul's not saying that in Jesus, all of these distinctions have actually disappeared as if there are no more Jews in the world, or that in his time there were no longer slave or free men, or that there's no longer any such thing as male and female. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is that in Jesus, these social identifying labels by which people used to form their core self-understanding, and in doing so, establish their place in the world, whether it was a good place or it wasn't, whether it was advantageous or disadvantageous, he says, in Jesus, those things are no longer the core of our identity. They no longer define, ultimately, who we are, because who we are now is a child of God through faith in Jesus. And so, even though my place in this world may not be secure, I can still live a life secure in the knowledge of who I am, because my true identity is secured in Jesus Christ for all eternity. So, Scott, like you were saying, we don't want to diminish the fact that these feelings are real, uh, that people may be struggling with these feelings. So, if I'm struggling with those feelings, uh, if I have a child that may be struggling with the feelings, these feelings, or even friends that may be struggling with this, where can we turn to? What are some resources that we can access? Yeah, that's a great question, Sean. And one of the things I think that needs to happen is that Christians need to see their churches as places where they can go for help. Now, not a lot of people feel really qualified to address or deal with serious issues of gender dysphoria or, you know, those kinds of really difficult issues. And then I don't think we should presume to be able to do that. Although one of the greatest needs that people have when they're dealing with something that is so difficult and frightening is to at least know that within the body of Christ, they have a safe and supporting community that loves them, regardless of the kinds of struggles that they're going through. So I think one of the things we can do is simply provide an unconditional place of love and support. Now, practically speaking, in terms of resources, obviously there's a place, I think, where we have to seek the help of some qualified professionals, whether that's in the area of counseling or psychiatry or whatever. The only caution I would give there is to be sure that you find a qualified professional who shares your worldview. In the case of parents, I think there's a similar approach of finding some professional help where needed. But there's also some resources I think we could point towards, especially maybe as a first place to go if you have a child who's experiencing a sense of discomfort or disconnect between their body and their sense of identity or gender. One I would point to would be Focus on the Family. And if you just go to Focus on the Family, they have a great resource. One is called Helping Children with Gender Identity Confusion. It's kind of a thematic guide where there are some uh, FAQs that they answer, but also some resources they point towards. One really good book that I would point parents toward reading, I think it's a good resource, is a book by Glenn Stanton called Secure Daughters, Confident Sons. That's just a really good book on understanding the the differences and the different needs in terms of establishing a healthy sense of gender for your kids and the role that moms and dads have in that. So that's another one I would recommend. Good. Well, thank you very much for those recommendations. And it's been some great teaching today. You're welcome, Sean. It was a big subject. I, sure. I hope that uh, people can at least pull a few nuggets out. For sure. And, uh, and they'll be of help to them. For sure. And, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And as always, if you have any questions, not only on this subject, but others that uh, Prepared to Answer uh, discusses or we have on our website, we encourage you to reach out to us either through Facebook or email, through our website, through Instagram, and we'll be more than happy to come alongside you and help you. We again thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you join us next time. This podcast has been a ministry of Prepared to Answer. Our mission at Prepared to Answer is to help prepare, equip, and encourage the Church of Jesus Christ 
to grow in confidence of faith by teaching Christians to think like Jesus. To access more resources to help you begin understanding life and the world around you with the mind of Jesus, visit our website at www.preparedtoanswer.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at at preparedtoanswer. Or contact us directly by email at info at preparedtoanswer.org. May the Lord bless and keep you.